Welcome to the Women's Bible Study Podcast, a ministry of Sheridan House. We continue today in the series, God's Masterpiece, a study of women in the Bible. If you've missed any part of this series, you can find it and many others online at SheridanHouse.org. We hope you enjoy today's lesson. Well, turn with me to chapter 7 in the book of Esther as we continue this incredible story. We've been saying to each other out in the hall and everything else, we're saying, can you believe how timely this is? And and I've said this before a hundred times, I think, but it's just amazing to me every year when we get ready to decide what's going to happen, what we're going to study in the fall and how after much prayer and everything, something will come to mind of what we should be studying and how every year it has been so pertinent. It's incredible. And how much, how so with the book of Esther, right? And so we're going to be looking today at God's perfect time. And we're going to begin by talking about our time versus God's time. And we love the fact, A, on your outline, we're going to be talking about how how finally the good guys are winning. The story is about to turn. Well, it started turning a little bit last week when we studied, but it's like, wow, finally we're seeing a change. Now, I don't know about you, but I love a good book or movie that has a Don't you? And especially in times like this, it's like, okay, give me back. You know, I love my um, Beverly Lewis stories about the Amish. And because their life is simple. And, you know, they ride in horse and buggies, and I just can't believe I get to see a page in history, and they actually still are around, for goodness sake, amazing. But to be able to look into that, to me, that's just such a relief and fun to look at something sweet and calm like that. Or how about this one? I don't know if I have any Lord of the Ring fans out there. But um, if you've read the books or seen any of the movies, there's a scene in the second book. It's called The Two Towers. And there's a moment when the good guys are in a castle that's called Helm's Deep. And they're all holed up there because the enemy is coming down on them by the thousands. And they're orcs and they're um, trolls and other horrific looking creatures. I don't know, even remember what they're called. And they are coming, marching down on Helm's Deep. And you think, oh my goodness, this is just, is this going to, the movie going to end sadly? Or what's happening with the good guys in, the, in Helm's Deep? And you see them throwing their ropes over and starting to climb up onto the castle and everything. It's just horrifying. And then all of a sudden, over the hill comes Gandalf the White. And he is in a white something flowing in the breeze and he's sort of almost illuminating and he's got his sword drawn and he's got all the good guys with him. I think they're, they're um, walking, talking uh, trees or something like that. It's just very interesting, the Ents. And they come roaring over the hillside and you think, oh my goodness, the battle is over and sure enough it is. The, the bad guys just run for cover and in fact, actually um, J.R. Tolkien's uh, uh, image of Gandalf the White, he's actually sort of a, an image of Jesus, actually, and he was a Christian. And uh, anyway, and so it, that, at that moment to see this, the good guys coming over the, the mountain, you were like, yes, I'm going to watch this movie again tomorrow. 
And we have that feeling, don't we? We want the good guys to win. And here in this, yes, uh, here in this story, it happens. So look with me, and I'm going to start the beginning of the story in verse 1 through 6. So the king and Haman went into the feast with Queen Esther. Remember, she last week invited the king to come to dinner. On the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O God, O king, I'm sorry, God is involved in it, but O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I should have been silent, for affliction is not to be compared with the loss of the king. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he and where is he who has dared to do this? Finally, poop, the light is coming on with King Ahasuerus. Finally, um, apparently, uh, Esther has helped the king put together the connection between the Jewish people and herself. Apparently, we don't know this for sure, but this is the way it sounds in this section here, that she's, she's finally saying, and guess what? You're about to kill all those Jews. I'm one of them. I'm one of them. So again, the timing of it, and we're beginning to see that the good guys are winning. A on your outline. We're finally beginning to see the plot turning around. We've already talked about how God will accomplish his agenda in his way. And the last few weeks, we've laughed about the irony and humor that Haman has to take Mordecai for a ride on the royal horse and, you know, kind of take him around the town and say, this is the man that the king honors. This is the man that king honors. And we love the irony of that because he thought it was going to be him, didn't he? Yeah. And so we love that and we laugh about that. And when he, um, when he was actually coming in to the presence of the king to ask for the life of Mordecai to be, to be hanged, and we can, we can be encouraged with Esther for her to be strong as she faces the king and, and all those kinds of things and Mordecai to hang in there because here's the thing. We know the end of the story. We know what's going to happen at the end of the story. We know about chapter 8 of Esther. We know what is going to transpire. But here's the thing, and this is what I want us to really wrap our minds around. Most of the time in our own lives, we don't know the ending. We can't say, oh, well, you know, I'm just going to sit by and have a cup of coffee because I know, you know, that I know the ending. We don't know the ending most of the time in our lives. So it changes our perspective a little bit. We're cheering Esther and Mordecai on, but we're not so sure about us. Is this going to turn out okay? So we can struggle, we can complain. And that is because our time references are very different from God's. Be on your outline. What is our time reference? Our time reference is kind of like a line, kind of a timeline. You know, I was born here, graduated from high school here, went to college there, and we kind of have it in a line of progression in our life. Number one, 
because our, our time is objectively measured. We live by a calendar and a clock. We live by the days and the seasons. Um, most of us are very religious about our calendars. I remember when our kids were growing up, everybody in the house had a calendar. Roby had a calendar, Tori had a calendar, mom had a calendar, dad had a, had a calendar, and oh, we had a family ca calendar. And because um, dad is uh, very calendar driven, we'd have calendar meetings on Sunday night. Okay, Roby, have we gotten your soccer game on the family calendar? Tori, your music lesson, is that up there here? And we have to all, you know, come together and look over our calendars. Calendars are very important. In fact, Bob now has gone from paper calendars to his calendar um, on his iPad. And yes, it, it will translate onto his iPhone as well. But uh, anyway, I call his, his I, iPad calendar his mistress. <laughs> because I feel like sometimes I have to fight to get his attention from his mistress. Anyway, our entire lives are oriented around this perspective, the element of passing time. You know, New Year's Eve, I don't know if you're this way, but New Year's Eve was always extremely depressing to me. Isn't that terrible to say that? Um, I would, I, I, on New Year's Eve, everybody's saying, oh, okay, let's, you know, ring the new year in and, you know, all that kind of thing. And I was always, this is the last year that Tori's going to be here before she goes to college. <laughs> or, oh my goodness. And I would, it was always a sad time for me because of the changes that were going to come around in the new year. But we, everything we measure you know, is so geared to our calendars. Watching our children grow before our eyes is a measure of time. Wow. Number two, first of all, uh, it is objectively measured. Our time is tangible. Events are seen. We can record them. And our times, um, uh, uh, the, uh, the times in our timeline are touchable and present. They are tangible because they're so wrapped around our senses. If you go into a store by the end of October, and you can start to smell um, pine and all that. What immediately comes to your mind? Christmas, absolutely. We associate our senses with time passing. In fact, I don't even like to go in the stores at October because I'm like, I have not even gotten past Thanksgiving and I don't want to think about pine trees and decorations and, and all those kinds of things. Or when we feel heat, summer. And so, so much of our understanding of time is linked to our senses. Number three, time is rarely ignored. We wish we could. We wish we could shut it down for a moment. And if you're like me, the moment I wish I could shut it down the most is when I turn on the light in the bathroom and have to look in the mirror to put on my makeup. <laughs> and I think, oh my word, there are a couple extra ones today. And um, we can, we, we, it marches on, it continues, it never quits. We rarely are even unaware of the time of day. Now, I don't want you to look over at the clock on the wall, nor look at your watches, but I bet within 15 or 20 minutes you could tell me what time it is right now. We're very aware of the passage of time. All of this is completely untrue of God completely untrue of God. C, what is God's time perspective? He does not operate in our limited time reference at all. Number one, 
his time is without boundaries. Instead of a timeline, he is unlimited because he is eternal. His time is immeasurable, number two. He created time to order our lives. He does not need that order. <laughs> he does not need to be restricted by it. Therefore, he doesn't operate within the time as we know it, and we're so bound to it, but he is not bound to it. And the sooner we learn that, the less frustrating uh, we will feel, less frustrated we will feel uh, as we wait on him to work. His time is not our time. He is seeing it from an per eternal perspective. Time was given to us. Wish he hadn't, but, you know, whatever. Three, his time is absolutely intangible. In contrast to our world being so limited by the tangible, the senses, he is not limited by the senses or any other real, quote, unquote, that we know. He is the creator. Uh, I read a while ago about um, a supernova that had been seen, that was seen bursting uh, in Chile in 1987. I wasn't born then, but um, you know that's apparently what what happened. And the interesting thing was the reality of the bursting of the nova was that it happened years prior to that, and the light took that long to be translated to Chile for the Chileans to see it bursting, and that is so illustrative of the fact that God is in control of time. And that's just one little tiny particle of, of the eternal time frame that God has. The billions and billions of galaxies and stars and so forth that he created. All that to say that our timeline does not restrict the creator God. Because of that, sometimes God seems to be silent for periods of time. And therefore, sometimes feels unfair maybe in our hearts. Wait a minute, you know, I've been praying about this for how long now, Lord? Are you hearing me? Sometimes we feel. So we're going to talk about that for just a little bit. Next on your outline, when God seems silent. Great Philip Yancey quote, no matter how we rationalize, God will sometimes seem unfair from a person trapped in time. Only at the end of time, after we have attained God's level of viewing, only then will fairness reign. Until then, we will not know and can only trust in a God who does know. Wow. Is that in your books? Good, because that's something that I want to read really every morning during devotions. That is so true. Until we are past our time, we will not understand uh, uh, who God is as far as time is concerned. A, is he silent? Is he silent? If we learn anything from the book of Esther, we want to internalize this concept that God operates in his own time frame in his sovereign way. Number one, yes, there are times when he is silent. But that does not mean he's ignoring us. That does not mean he isn't working. That does not mean that he's not aware. We've seen that repeatedly in the book of Esther. Silent, but certainly there. And we see that throughout the Bible. One of the most dramatic ones is perhaps Job. In the book of Job, when he was going through such a difficult time in his life, 
and he was sort of like, where, where are you, God? And do you remember how God responded? He said, okay, Job, where were you when I created the universe? Where were you when I placed the, um, the fish in the sea? And it's just so much more beautifully put. I should have, anyway, look it up in the book of Job. It's just wonderful. And he, there was a period of time where it looked like God was absolutely silent and uninvolved in Job's life. And then we find out, oh my goodness, he was indeed working. God was working. Then there's a 400 years of silence between Genesis and Exodus. And then another 400 years of silence between Malachi and Matthew. Silence from heaven when the Lord Jesus himself was hanging on the cross. Silence. There are many times when God is silenced. But, number two, he is silently working. Silently working. Isn't that a relief in our lives when we're saying, oh, feel like, God, are you, are you aware of this difficulty? Are you aware of what's happening in my life? He is silently working. One of the things... Um, that can be so annoying. Have you ever had this? Call your doctor's office or Walgreens and they say, uh, can I please put you on a brief hold? And so you politely say, sure. Five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes. Oh, I'm sorry, can I put you on another brief hold please? And it's just so absolutely annoying to be put on hold. I don't know if you felt that way. And um, sometimes we feel like we're being put on hold by God. But let's always remember that when we're waiting for God to speak or show up in our lives, he is there. He is aware. He is working. He has our best interest on his wonderful heart. Many days, it feels like a deafening silence. If that is true, and it is, how do we cope with that? How do we deal with that? Uh, as followers of Jesus? How do we, what do we do when God is silent? First of all, B, how do we understand God's silence? There's a great Oswald Chambers quote, and he says, has God trusted you with his silence? A silence has great meaning. God's silences actually are his answers. Actually, his answers. First, some things to consider that will be helpful. Number one, consider what God is saying. There are periods of time when there is silence in our lives, and so we need to remember that, and we have to say, okay, Lord, what are you saying to me? What are, what are you speaking to me? Because this is where often our faith will grow. When we're saying, okay, Lord, I don't see you today. I've been praying about this. I know you hear them. You haven't acted on this yet. So what are you trying to teach me? And it can be a time when our faith grow, grows because we have to learn to trust that he is there and working, even if there is no evidence. For us, years ago, when we first, Bob and I, when we first got to Sheridan House, um, after a little bit, we, we kind of went through a period where we were saying, Lord, is this what you want us to invest our whole lives in? Do you want us to stay, you know, here at, at at Sheridan House, or is there another ministry that you're kind of calling us to? And we were at that point of kind of prayerfully saying, what do you have for us, you know, ultimately, God? Is this it, or are, are you calling us to a different kind of ministry or whatever? And it was such a time of growth for us because we kept watching for God to work. We're prayerful together, watching. Did you hear that? Did you see that? Um, did you consider that? And, and, and it was a time of watching for God's hand in our life. If God had spoken right away, it, it would not have produced the growth in our lives personally and together as a family. Number two, 
Secondly, we watch for subtle changes. When God is about to work, we will observe subtle turning of events. Look at our story. The subtle turning of events. The king could not sleep, and so they bring in the boring annals of history to read to him, and then all of a sudden, wow, he realizes he has not honored Mordecai yet. And then the whole story begins. There's subtle changes beginning to happen. God is beginning to do something here, something subtle, but it's something is happening. So when we see subtle changes, it can reveal that God is about to do something different. It's going to show up in a way that we perhaps weren't expecting. When we stand back and observe, we can begin to pick them up. In the middle of God's silence, we can begin to observe his planning, his plan beginning to work if we are watchful. That was true in our situation, again, come about Sheridan House for Bob and me, that we had sub subtle comments from people talking about Sheridan House and this and that. And have you ever thought about, and, and we had subtle uh, comments that were, were made to us. And so we started thinking about it in a little bit of a different perspective. What we learned at this stage is to be sensitive and discerning, listening, watching, looking at is, is there anything that God is doing here that's a little bit out of the ordinary that would kind of shed some light on what he's about to do? Watching for God to work, tuning our ears in to hear even the small whispering of God. And then, number three, prepare for dramatic change. Prepare for dramatic changes. This is when God steps into our time and space to end the silence. And again, going back to our situation with Bob and I praying through about what to do about Sheridan House, that happened with us. It began with, we began to observe definite things. We got strong, jilting statements made by godly counsel. Um, when... Um, before it just had been kind of hints you know this is a possibility have you ever thought about that and now it was dramatic and it was a dramatic change in a, of our heart in our lives um, uh, god's hand was clearly in that direction it was a turning point for us in our hearts and at sheridan house we learned so much and uh, it, it was just a, a time of incredible growth for us that is about to happen in the story of Esther. Look with me to six and seven. This is where the, the story picks up. And Esther said, foe and enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. And the king rose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. Do you see? It was first. It was kind of subtle. Um, the king was saying, "Hmm, Mordecai, and let's honor him." And then all of a sudden, boom! These are dramatic events. <laughs> Things are changing dramatically at this point. A complete flip-flop of the plot. Haman is now at the victim's Esther's mercy. God dramatically begins to accomplish his will. Now, the last aspect to consider in understanding God's silence is number four, expect a surprise ending. 
expect a surprise ending. Look at verses 7 through 10. Again, verse 7. And the king arose in his wrath from his wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. Verse 8. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine as Haman was falling on the couch before where Esther was. Wow. And the king said, will he even assault the queen in my presence, in my own house? And the word left the mouth of the king. When the word, as the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's head. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king said, moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high. And the king said, hang him on it. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai, and the wrath of the king abated. Wow, who would have ever guessed this ending in chapter 3 and 4? When the plot was discovered and Esther was first trembling in her boots, remember, she's, oh, you know, I, I haven't even seen the king for a month. I don't even know if he likes me anymore. And, you know, I'm just a, a, a little girl in the harem. And, you know, wow, me. And we see her trembling. And my goodness, look where we are today. That's what we can expect when God begins to work. He is sovereign. He can work in any way he pleases. He's not limited by anything we know or understand. He's not limited by time, space, or our senses. That's how he works. And I think God, Jesus' resurrection is perhaps one of the most dramatic examples of that. The Jews and the Romans at the crucifixion thought, done. We're over this problem in our country now. But God was not finished, was he? And raised Jesus from the dead three days later. Wow, wow, very dramatic. He isn't limited. God will have his way in whatever way he chooses. Knowing these truths about God's silence um, is great, but how do we cope with them realistically? How do we do that? Number C on your outline. How do we cope with God's silence? Another great quote by Oswald Chambers. A wonderful thing about God's silence is that his stillness is contagious. It gets into you causing you to become perfectly confident so that you can honestly say, I know that God has heard me. I know that God has heard me. So let's take a look at three R's in coping with God's silence. Three R's. First one, realize. Realize the silent period is neither accidental nor fatal. This is a learning time specifically designed for your growth, my growth, and an orchestration of God's perfect plan and timing, realizing that, that there's something going on with the silent, silence. God is trying to teach me something. He, he's trying for, he, he wants me to grow in a certain particular area. Our job is not to fret, but to learn to be sensitive for his voice, tuning our hearing for the audible changes that begin to happen, noticing things. Hmm, that's a different direction than, than, than I thought we were going and being watchful about what God is doing, realizing. Number two, remember that God's working are unrelated to our limited perspective. Multiple times in the last weeks, we've talked about the, the perspective of an eagle, you know, flying high above the world and can see 
you know, all the things. We've talked about how fun that would be someday to be able to see the world from that kind of a perspective of flying high. Well, imagine the perspective of God who created the eagle. <laughs> he has a, a, an eternal, sovereign perspective. We know that in our heads, but we need to trust that in our hearts. We need to trust that he's got a perfect perspective. Number three R, third R, remind ourselves that there is no coincidences in life, nor is there luck or fate. And I'm trying to remove the word good luck from my mouth <laughs> because there is no such thing. God is in control. The events in our lives are sovereignly planned. We need to trust his justice and his motives. We need to trust in his power. You know, he's not in the heavenly places wringing his hands saying, oh my goodness, can you believe this, this pandemic that's hit the world? Can you believe this virus? Oh my goodness. And wow, can you, uh, wow, what's happening in the, in, 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 in the United States of America during this election season? What's going on? He's not up there wringing his hands. He is well aware of everything that is going on in our presence. Wow. We have talked about this so often, but nature itself, I talked about last week too, nature itself is such an example of that. Sun go coming up every day, sun going down every day. Up north and other places, seasons happen. Fall happens, the leaves change, they fall off the trees. And then winter happens and the cold weather sets in and, we, and people that are up north get to wear jackets and nice sweaters and things like that. Seasons happen. As we look at nature and see the consistency and the dependability, it helps us know that the one that created nature is consistent and sovereign and in control. Wow. But it's especially hard when things get rough in the silent times. So we need to remember this. And in those days where we think, God, are you hearing me? To go through those, the exercise of those three, three R's. Now we cannot leave this passage without observing again some character qualities. That's one of the fun things that we have enjoyed is learning from the good things we see and the negative things we see and people's characters. Uh, let's look for a minute at character qualities that we observe in Esther during this particular season. A, she was sensitive to God's leading. Verses 1 and 2. Again, so the king and Haman went in a to a feast with King Esther, and then on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to her, again said to her, what is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted to you, and so forth. This was the second banquet. Is that kind of amazing? I mean, if you think about that, obviously God's timing for her to address the issue on the second uh, uh, night was to have the night when the king had insomnia and the records were brought in and he realized that Mordecai had not been honored. We needed that little blip in the story. And so um, we see the sensitivity to God's leading that she called for a second banquet. She didn't know that the king was going to have insomnia that night, but she sensed that God was saying, have another banquet. And I don't know about you, but if I had been called into a 
um, absolute monarch's presence for a banquet and my people were about to be eliminated, I think he would have said, okay, Esther, what would you like? You know, what, I'll give you half of my kingdom. I'd say, oh my goodness, I'm about to die and all my people with me, blah, blah, blah. And it would have just flowed out of my mouth rather than her very, you know, graciously saying, you know what, my wish is that you come to a feast tomorrow night. Wow, the self-control and the sensitivity to God's leading, wow. She was so confident in God's leading that she waited another day. That's amazing to me, amazing. B, also she had humility. Again, look at verses three and four. And the queen answered, if I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would, not, I would have been silent. For our affliction is not to be compared with the loss of the king. If I have found favor. I don't think she was just saying, oh, and by the way, king, if you favor me, I think she sincerely meant that. I think she was sincerely uh, saying, not just for effect, I think she was being very straightforward. If I found favor with you, let me tell you what's going on. Let me uh, get your attention about this. I wouldn't have bothered you unless, unless it was very urgent. Our very lives are at stake. She approaches him with humility rather than haughtiness. I love this verse. I think I should put it on my mirror, Proverbs 15.1. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh tongue stirs up anger. At so often we approach conflict with, who are you to treat me like this attitude? How dare you? We don't see that in Esther at all. We see her honestly, straightforward, telling the king what's, what's going on, but we don't see any, we don't see any anger. We don't see uh, a lot of emotion. She just goes straight to the point of what she needs to say, see. Number C, she has a non-critical spirit. She could have complained and criticized. How could you listen to this man? How, how could you be so heartless not to check on who these people are that you signed the edict to, to annihilate? Did, weren't you thinking? Come on, king, where is your brain? <laughs> you know, would be a natural response. Notice that she wastes no time on comments and attitudes that will get her nowhere. She could have been angry and accusatory, but it would have been totally non-productive. And that is such a lesson to us, isn't it? That we waste so much energy in times of conflicts in our relationships that get us nowhere. We need to learn from, the, from Esther. And look at how she handles She's very straightforward, very honest but she doesn't waste a lot of time on emotion and anger and accusatory tone and so forth. We observe in her instead, D, she had an ability to handle conflict wisely. Number one, she boldly addresses the issue at hand. She is humble, but wastes no time beating around the bush. Okay, you really want to know, King? Let me tell you, this is what's going on. She does not beat around the bush. Number two, she does not manipulate. No game playing. 
She goes directly to the heart of the problem. So often we spend so much time circling around the issue and, you know, well, you did this, you know, we're talking about this today, but two weeks ago, do you remember? And, you know, those kinds of things. And we bring up totally irrelevant things so that we can be ineffective and we can lose our hearers. She does not manipulate. Number three, she uses her tongue very wisely. In your homework, Proverbs 25, 11, and 15 says, a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver, verse 15. With patience, a ruler must be pursued, and a soft tongue will break a bone. Now, what in the world does a fitly uh, word fitly spoken are like apples of gold sitting in silver. I think the idea here is the wealth. It, it's like, you know, if, if you say something in a good way, it can be compared to something of tremendous value, like a gold apple sitting in a, in a silver dish. In other words, well-spoken word is very, very valuable. I think that's what that, that verse is saying. And that is the way Esther approached her husband, patiently, putting it in the right way and in the timing. She graciously, but forthrightly and strongly stated the problem. Now, what can we learn from Haman? Oh my goodness. Again, verse 5 through 7. Thus King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he? Where is he? Who has... Uh, who uh, done all this? And Esther said, a foe and an enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen, and the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. A, callousness leads to cold-hearted evil. We've seen this repeatedly in Haman's life in the last weeks. With a flick of the wrist, he condemns an entire race. And then, hey, could you pass me the wine, please? And gets drunk with the king. Remember that? Unbelievable, the insensitivity, the callousness that turns into cold-hearted evil. But when it was his own skin, oh my goodness, pure terror, pure terror. So much so that B, self-preservation leads to going beyond propriety. Look again at verse 8 through 10. And the king returned from the palace garden in the place where they were drinking wine as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, will he even assault the queen in my presence in my own house? And as the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's head. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance, said, moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, um, who saved the king, is standing in Haman's, at Haman's house. And the king said, hang him on it. And they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king was abated. He was so beside himself, Haman was so beside himself with fear that he goes beyond court etiquette and propriety and he falls on Esther's couch. Dr. Uh, S. Good Goldman said, the arrogant bully became, as usually in the face of a disaster, a whining coward. Isn't that true? He was, you know, well, let's take these people down and very bold in his, 
uh, at that stage. But when it's happening to him, oh my goodness. Not only was the king enraged over what Esther has shared, but likely distraught over what he'd done. Oh my goodness, what have I done? The edict was irrevocable. And so he, it's like he, he said, I, you know, I just need to go out in the garden and think. Uh, what am I going to do here? This edict against the Jews includes my beloved Esther. Oh my goodness, what have I done? How am I going to get past this? How am I going to turn this around? And so I think part of it, his anger and his being distraught, he went out into the garden to think. And when he gets back and sees Haman throw himself at the queen's feet, he thinks that, he, that he's actually molesting her. Wow. C, when we are self-absorbed, we can be friendless. Notice it said, said in verse, the second part of uh, 8, they covered his head. And that means he was condemned to death. Also notice verse 9, uh, when you're a bragger like Haman, it's interesting how quickly phew, your friends disappear. Isn't that interesting? Hey, King, by the way, um, did you know that Haman built some gallows to hang Mordecai on? Uh, one of his, you know, one of the people that probably served under him, and yet quickly, how it changed against Haman. Wow. In summary, the real lesson here is that God will be victorious in the end. God will be victorious in, in the end. Haman is a symbol of the evil one, of Satan. God will prevail in the end. Proverbs 11:8 says, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant, all evildoers will be stubble. Malachi 4:1. The day is coming, uh, shall when he will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. God is going to end the tyranny of the evil one in our world. Isn't that wonderful news? Wow. We can be confident in that and we can be comforted in that. As we look around the evils of the world and the innocents being hurt, God and righteousness will, will, will win out. Another lesson apart from the grace of God uh, is that we all have, this is sort of sad news to all of us, we all have the potential to be a Haman. We all have that sin nature in us. Uh, Jeremiah 17, 9 through 10 says this, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. We all have uh, our sinners and have the potency, propensity, let me say that again, propensity to yield to that sin. Unless we've received the sacrifice that Jesus made for on the cross, we all have the potential to allow that sin to grow, 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 grow in our lives. But when God forgives us, wow, we are free from being uh, ruled by our sin nature. We are free to follow God. We are free to become children of God. We are free to allow 
the Lord's goodness to flow over us in righteousness. Wow, how beautiful is that? The final question is, what am I focusing the energies of my life on? What am I focusing on? Am I like Haman, focusing on this world's baubles, like power, prestige, fame, and all those things, money, um, having things? What, are, what am I focusing on? Or am I focusing on the things that are eternal, making our goal to please the Lord, to please the Lord, to please the Lord? Charles Swindoll said this, when will we ever learn <laughs> at the precise moment when it would have its greatest impact, God ceases his silence and sovereignty, in sovereignty makes his moves. And when he does, it's full of surprises. Boy, didn't we see that in the story. And may we witness it in our own lives because if he loved Mordecai and Esther, he loves you and me and wants to work in the same way in our lives as well. For previous lessons or other resources, please visit sharedinhouse.org or call us at 954-583-1552. We hope you can join us again next week.